In this interview series we call The Circuit, TechPoint serves up the human stories behind the major tech headlines in Indiana. I'm your host, Michael Angelier, CEO of TechPoint. Today, we talk to RJ Tallier, who was founder and CEO of Pattern89, an AI-powered software startup for marketers, recently purchased by global stock photography supplier Shutterstock, where RJ is now vice president of product marketing. An English major, RJ's path into tech was non-traditional, but he ended up riding and contributing to the wave of marketing tech success as Indianapolis became a MarTech capital. He tells the stories behind starting Pattern89 in partnership with High Alpha and its acquisition by Shutterstock. He elaborates both on personal journey successes as well as failures. Lastly, he shares how Pattern89 drove a diversity, equity, and inclusion commitment to building a company representative of the country. Welcome to the circuit. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, we're excited to get into the story of Pattern 89 and Shutterstock and then also your story um, here in Indy and in the Indie tech community as well. So let's start with Pattern 89. In 2016, uh, you decided to found this company that you would be CEO of as well. What was happening? Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, well... Um when I graduated from college, actually, if I can go back even further to 20, or 2002, I, if you would have asked me what do I want to do with my life, mm-hmm. I would have told you I want to be a professor and own a business. Hmm. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I was, like, you know, and um, I am not a professor, um, <laughs> but I've always wanted to, you know, start a business, own a business. And, and uh, at that time, I had just left another startup, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Uh, lots of cool opportunities, leading product, product marketing teams came my way after, um, you know, my experience at Exact Target and Salesforce and, and another startup. And then, um, then I talked to Eric Tobias, hmm. and he said, well, what are you going to do? And we were having coffee, and I said, well, you know, I've got all these things. And he's like, well, you ever thought about starting a business? Uh-huh. I was like, well, yeah, that's actually been what I wanted to do since I graduated. And he's like, well, what kind of business would you start? And I said, well, I've, I actually have three ideas for those. And he said, well, what are they? I was like, oh, they're, you know, bad ideas. They're dumb. And he said, well, no, come on, come on. And I was like, no, Eric, like, no, you know. Eric, one of the partners at High Alpha. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, well, cool, what are they? And I was like, okay. And then the first one, I rattled him off. I was like, you know, marketers are trying to figure out what works all the time, and they're experimenting over and over and over again, and they need a better way to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, across my career in marketing tech... This is like when they're designing a campaign or yeah. they needing to decide what to put on social media. Yeah, everything. I mean, like, every day there's some sort of uh, new meme or trend or some new way of saying something. Uh-huh. There's a new offer. There's... Um, new uh, technologies at that time, social media, like there's like a new social media platform every day mm-hmm. and marketers are trying to figure out how to do more with less, like the number of uh, channels that um, they manage just went from like six, the 10 years prior to hundreds almost. Wow. So they needed a rapid experimentation platform yeah. 
to help them do that. Yeah. And um, I was really excited about that idea. And Hard to um, be creative on demand. Well, right. Yes. Yeah. And then you got to figure out like how to um, get budget for things. And then you don't want to over budget experimental channels, mm-hmm. all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the overall problem was around trying to figure out how to experiment in a more efficient way. Yeah. And so that was kind of the core idea. And um, so, yeah. so then, so Eric, uh, partner at High Alpha, yeah. and which we're in today, yeah, yep. in their yep. awesome office uh, facility today, mm. and uh, this startup studio that helps companies get started. And, yes. and you made the decision, hey, I'm going to partner up with High Alpha to, yes. to launch this company. Talk about what was your rationale uh, to, in doing that. Well, um, uh, in I knew that I wanted to do something in marketing tech, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to work with best, mm-hmm. and truly. Uh, the high alpha team is the best. I mean, that I don't think you can dispute that in marketing tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted the biggest, uh, if I was going to take a big risk mm-hmm. like this and start a business, I wanted to make sure to partner with people who were the best. Sure. And um, it sounds a little bit, uh, a little cheesy, but I wanted people that I liked to work with me. And I'd worked with other VCs and PE folks um, that I didn't really care for, mm-hmm. um, and I really wanted to work with the team that I liked um, because you know in startup land it gets you know good times and bad times right yeah. and um, wanted to make sure that there was that kind of foundational respect and mm-hmm. um, that we could get through it and that's why so then the combination of just excellence with uh, mutual respect and that I liked them uh, made a good partnership. So you build this company. This with this product, this AI-powered uh, software product to help marketers with the daily challenges that you articulated before, yep. and then fast forward four plus years, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And Shutterstock comes along, yeah. the the brand that we know of as the one of the global mm-hmm. leaders in providing stock photography, mm-hmm. right? And so for one, and and they they offer to buy the company, yeah. <laughs> and so you have to you have you have a decision to make. Yep. Am I going to say yes yeah. to selling the company? Yeah. And uh, Shutterstock has a strategy for why they would be interested in an AI-powered software comp- yeah. uh, product. Uh, talk to us about both what was the, the, the decision on your side and then also what was the strategy for, for Shutterstock? Yeah, so last summer in July or June or something like June, I probably I got an inbound email from the head of Corp Dev at okay. Shutterstock saying, hey, we're looking at uh, purchasing AI-powered creative, creative solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk? And, you know, I, I said, sure, okay. <laughs> You know, like, it's worth 30 minutes or whatever, right? Not thinking that it would really be what it's become. And we had partnered with some of Shutterstock's competitors on um, some ideas around combining AI and creativity um, with uh, the content that actually marketers need to execute the campaigns that they want to do. Okay. So um, we had the conversation. One thing led to another. We... um, uh, pitched the solution to a set of executives at Shutterstock, and they loved it, and mm. we loved them. Mm. And um, we, being Jeff Cunning, who's my co-founder, and mm-hmm. um, and then also the executive team at, at Pattern Eighty Nine, and we were like, "Wait, this really feels like a good connection." And as we were in a place where we needed substantial amounts of capital to be able to um, take it from just an experimentation platform or just an AI-powered creativity solution to actually where you could complete the work. We were looking at all these sorts of integrations and partnerships to go from just a siloed uh, piece of the pie mm-hmm. to actually becoming a part of the creative workflow. Mm-hmm. So, so those marketers that not not only wanted to pick 
what to get, but then had to go get it Correct. to go buy the asset. Right, right. exactly. And okay. so, um, the, so it just became more and more compelling to actually be a part of the place where you could not only make the decision, but then execute on the decision. Yeah. And um, it really tied into what our vision was for the, um, you know, the future of Pattern 89, mm -hmm. and it tied in nicely with them. So it, uh, it all made sense, and it was a good outcome. So... Yeah, it was. It's sort of surreal to be yeah. honest. So, so and, and congratulations. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks. I know that is a big milestone and a big, uh, the, some big decisions to make along the way, yes. and, and a lot of things that are can be, can go either way. There's just some. Yes. There's some. Every discussion matters so much. Every negotiation <laughs> matters so much. Um, but now, fast forward, what six or seven months later? Yep. And now, uh, pattern eighty nine. Now, Shutterstock. Mm -hmm. This team mm -hmm. is now. a a big part of Shutterstock's AI future and assets, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, what was cool is with the acquisition of Pattern 89, as well as two other acquisitions, um, Shutterstock announced Shutterstock.ai okay. um, as the um, kind of commitment to um, next-gen technology um, powering the Shutterstock experience. So um, uh, the entire Shutterstock team, or the, sorry, the entire Pattern 89 team mm -hmm. became part of uh, Shutterstock yeah. and um, our software engineers, data science, and product teams are leading the charge yeah. on a lot of the big Shutterstock.ai solutions. So it's 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 uh, it's again cheesy. It's like a real proud thing for yeah. me that like the the team is leading the charge on on a lot of this stuff, yeah. and um, that uh, it's a it's a nice continuation of the work that we were doing. Like we haven't been like sidetracked from the vision that we had for mm -hmm. Pattern 89, but instead it just is like we're running faster with more resources and um, and the team is excited and interested in what yeah. they're doing. So, which, cool. which, is, which is cool. Um, there's something about making an impact on a place yeah. and to have a team that's, that you help to build yeah. and, and to lead based here in Indianapolis that is, that, that is on the future horizon for a major, major company. Yeah. And that's, that's something that has to be of pride for you as well. You grew up here. Like yeah. this is your hometown. Yep. This is a place where you've invested your career. Yeah. And you said uh, at one point in an interview that I heard that five years into your career, you stopped apologizing from being yeah. from Indiana, and that you said, "I'm going to make this yeah. part of my part of my legacy." Talk yeah. more about that. Well, I mean, like credit goes to um, the exact target executives on on that one, and I really got on board. But we um, we would go to these sales pitches at Exact Target. And um, some of our biggest competitors were coastal, right? Mm -hmm. So they're on the west coast or the east coast, and um, we would—they would say, "Oh, where you, you know, where's your headquarters?" And we would say, "Indianapolis," but we have an office in New York. You know, mm -hmm. it was always like the well, the mm -hmm. one more, like, "Oh yeah, we have a, we have two people in Seattle." <laughs> you know, um, and then we realized that um, actually the way that we did business and the you know the kind of Midwesternness of it was mm -hmm. actually not just folksy and. Um, you know, folksy, uh, but instead it was actually a strategic advantage that mm -hmm. people wanted to be treated um, with respect and sometimes uh, some of the sharp elbows um, um, with some of our competitors actually led to bad outcomes for customers. So um, we kind of doubled, or exact target really doubled down on, hey, Indy's the office mm -hmm. and Indianapolis is the uh, global head for exact target global. Yep. They would bring everybody in for training here yeah. in Indianapolis as the company expanded across the globe yep. and they branded the culture as orange and yeah. everybody talks about the orange culture, which is, um, it's a lot of things, yeah. you know, but I'm something I'm really proud of. And yeah. so, um, it, you know, I now even, 
you know, throughout, since then, I've always been like, yeah, I'm in Indianapolis. And people then have their perceptions or, you know, uh-huh. misperceptions or misconceptions about what we are. But that's okay. So, um, and that, that exact target story, for those that not not familiar, one of the leading marketing tech companies yeah. um, acquired by, by Salesforce, $2.7 billion acquisition. Mm-hmm. And as, like, as you said, they, there is, they are now one of the most talked about examples yeah. about how a company can help to define and help to really put a place on the map and, and, and to, to make a really positive impact, not only, not only kind of physically in jobs, but also in culture and identity. Yes. Um, they are the biggest part of, and now Salesforce has their, the headquarters of their marketing cloud here yes. and one of the largest hubs in the Salesforce tower. So all those good things. Um, Indianapolis has become one of the kind of marketing tech capitals globally, a place where there are a lot of marketing tech companies and there's been a lot of success, billions of dollars in acquisition, obviously exact target and uh, Salesforce being the, being the biggest portion of that. But you've been part of the journey for multiple yes. of those companies. Yeah. yeah. And um, you've seen kind of uh, the evolution of that, that journey. You were, at exact target, you were employee number like sixty. Number sixty, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, so super early on. Yeah. Um, what do you think when you look back and analyze the the wave of that marketing tech journey? Yeah. What? Why? What? What are some of the biggest contributors to it? What do you What do you think are some of the biggest assets or ingredients for making that possible? Well, I, I think um, one is timing um, because Martech was just emerging at that mm-hmm. point, and so um, that Exact Target was founded around that time and really was an early leader in the email marketing world, um, and then added in mobile and social, etc. So I think that we were right on the um, uh, we got the timing right, or mm-hmm. I guess uh, the founders of Exact Target got the timing right. Um, and then I also think that um, um, with the right partners from like a, a board and a venture capital perspective that really mm-hmm. believed in the solution and um, poured lots of investment and uh, they had the right strategy to execute on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that other folks saw the um, talent and the cost of living and the um, return that you can get on um Indianapolis has compared to other places and started yeah. saying, okay, this is actually a strategic advantage. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just that snowball effect that mm-hmm. more and more um, uh, talent and experience in MarTech then spanned out to other companies. And you've seen other you know, companies put their headquarters here or other MarTech companies come and invest yeah. here. Or, a Primo being another big example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, or, or then, then more and more startups mm-hmm. um, want to start here because the, there's so much talent that knows how to to do it yeah. um, and was there in the beginning and has evolved with it. So let's let's now look toward the future of marketing tech. Yeah. A lot has happened since yeah. you entered into the field and now you're working on the front edge of AI and marketing tech. Mm-hmm. What's on the horizon? I, I think tons. I think that, um, you know, I'm, I am biased, but I think that um, artificial intelligence to help us make smarter decisions mm-hmm. in marketing technology is just in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Um, Forrester, uh, the analyst firm, mm-hmm. um, said that AI-powered uh, creativity is one of its 2022 predictions, mm-hmm. um, like one of its big focus areas, um, in addition to other things like account-based marketing and, um, you know, other other things. But I was excited to see that. I read that last night, actually. Mm-hmm. Um I think that um, we are just at the beginning of 3D and augmented reality, virtual reality, the metaverse. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? How do we connect in a digital <laughs> um, and physical world? Like, what, is, what does that look like from a marketing perspective? And then I also think that there are giant problems to be solved in the privacy arena because 
people want personalized experiences and they value personalized experiences, but they also get freaked out when too much data about them is shared. And you yeah. can see, you know, there's been everything from um, the new iOS to GDPR to um, other privacy restrictions um, put on marketing that's going to force innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm not exactly sure what all the solutions are going to be, but how do you balance um, personal data with the expectation that the brand knows me? Yeah. You know, everything from like, I'm sure you've had somebody complain to you. They're like, well, I'm a man. Why would I get an email with uh, um, women's clothes in it? Uh -huh. You know, it's yeah. like, like that brand doesn't know me. I'm like, well, did you tell them that you're a man or that you prefer <laughs> women's clothes? You know, I'm like, well, no, but I don't want to have them, them to have that data. Uh -huh. You know, so it's this like balance, right? Yeah. Of um, personalization versus privacy. Yeah. That I think is really going to be an interesting one to watch. So those three areas, are, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on them. Yeah, marketing in the metaverse. That that was. Oh yeah. That that will be yes. with with advertising yes. capabilities built into it. Yes, I think that there's giant opportunities in in there, and um, you know, it's kind of cool because when I started my career. Uh, uh, we were all still doing postcards. Like mm -hmm. literally, people sent out postcards, and then we were trying to convince people at Exact Target to like stop doing print or put some of their print budget into digital. And mm -hmm. everyone was like, "I don't know, I don't know." And now, and that felt like such a shift. And then, like Metaverse feels like, "Wow, that's another shift." Yeah. Um, you know, I wonder how that'll play out. Yeah. But it, you know, that's that's the opportunity in Martech. So we'll see. So RJ, if somebody were to zoom all the way back and look at your career. Mm and just look at the highlights on it, it could look like a pretty linear yeah. success story in marketing tech. Yeah. But when you then dial in a notch, yeah. you'll see that the, it, it was not so linear. Yeah. There were ups and downs, and there were some, there were some, some rocky yeah. stops or rocky chapters in there as well. Talk, talk about that. It's yeah. not all just a rosy journey. That, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, uh, you, I mean, your first job out of college, right? Yeah, well, so, yeah, my, my um, so when I first graduated from college, I, um, I took a, uh, a job, I was, I was the first class of Orr Fellows, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had a placement at a company that went bankrupt, um, and so I truly, despite best efforts, had not a lot to do. In fact, I, like, one of my assignments was to walk the CEO's dog. So, um, and you know, I just like, I came from like, you know, graduating on a high to like thinking, what have I, what have I done? You uh -huh. know, like, what am I doing? What have I done? Um, and so I left there to uh, work for a small market research firm and I kind of got myself in there and it was a great experience, but I was like, what am I doing? Like mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be a professor or I wanted to start a business and I, what am I, you know, like this isn't either of those. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and like, cause that's what we do, right? Like when you're like 24, you're like, I'm going to go to grad school and that'll solve my problem. Cause that's what I know. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Seriously. I go back to school. I'm good at that. Um, but then I took a job at exact target cause a friend recommended it to me and I was like, sure, whatever. And they, um, exact target was hiring for a deliverability consultant and, um, I didn't know what that was and truly I didn't know what it was. And, um, they said, uh, well just, you know, you seem smart, you seem sharp. Why don't you come and join? And I said, I want, I just don't even know what that means. So I don't, I don't know if I'll be successful. And then I said, you know what? Never mind. You see, guys seem great. I'll do it for six months because I'm going to grad school anyway. Mm -hmm. um, 10 years later, um, I was a vice president for uh, all messaging products at Salesforce. So, you know, through the acquisition, I just kept getting more and more responsibility at Exact Target. I ran the mobile team and ran product marketing teams and then ran all the messaging stuff. So it was an exciting 
journey, and that was awesome. And then I left there to go work for a startup that didn't exactly go belly up, but it kind of blew up in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that was definitely a rocky part. Uh, and then I started Pattern 89, as we talked about, and yeah. um, that wasn't all a smooth ride either. I mean, you know, day to day depends. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Every it's startup. definitely up and down and up and down. Uh, but th- throughout that, you just, you know, I... Actually, go back to DePaul, where you know I went to. Where we both went to yeah, college, and yeah. um, every semester I teach a class um, as a part of the, the senior seminar um, on failure, hmm. and it's a three-hour course, and I talk about failure because at DePaul and at college, I think we talk about success so much that mm-hmm. we don't know what failure looks like. Mm-hmm. And every time I, I ask the students, I'm like, "Raise your hand if you've ever failed," and they're like, and they'll raise their hands and they'll say, "And I'm like, well, tell me about the failure," and they're like, "Well, I was getting a C." in my class and then I went to meet with my professor and then I ended up getting an A minus. I'm like, you didn't fail. You know? <laughs> like what does it actually feel like to yeah. ha- be a part of a company that just runs out of money mm-hmm. or that gets shut down mm-hmm. or goes bankrupt mm-hmm. or, you know, a project that just loses a lot of money mm-hmm. or you get fired. Mm-hmm. You know, like those types of things. And those are not experiences that a lot of people have or certainly I didn't when I was that age either, but like that's what it you know, get resilience and getting through that stuff is something that uh, in tech world, is if you can, it's super exciting because you can yeah. take risks. So yeah. anyway, that whole failure idea um, is equally important to the success, and because you know you got to keep taking risks. Yeah. And, and you took yeah. a non, you took a non-traditional path to tech. I mean, yes. you were an English major, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have a master. I did end up going to grad school while I was um, working. Uh, I, I did a, a, a part-time thing, but I have a master's in English too, so in creative writing. So yeah. I've got this non-traditional thing. And whenever people ask me about my background, they assume I have like an MBA or mm-hmm. an engineer or something like that. Um, and they say, no, no, I actually have a master's <laughs> in creative writing. Um, but but it's, it's been funny because one of, um, you know, I'm not... Uh, as technically deep as some of the software engineers or the data science, but are actually, you know, they're a lot more technically deep. But what I can do is I can read documentation um, and translate that into customer-facing um, stories, materials, presentations, mm-hmm. content. I can go out and sell it with authority. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my first job at Exact Target, in te- my first job in tech, was an, as a deliverability consultant. And th- literally, the first thing I did was read the Can Spam Act, which had come out the year before. And so I was then the expert in deliverability at Exact Target for having read a giant, boring piece of legislation, <laughs> you know. But like I was, you know, then consulting with like the CMO of Home Depot on yeah. how to apply deliverability standards to their marketing programs. So, you know, that non-traditional background you can. Now, if I can't say, I found that like if I went into uh, an interview or a meeting and said like, "Hey guys, I'm an English major mm-hmm. and I'm a storyteller." I'm a creative writer. How can I help you? You know, um, but instead, I said, "No, I, I'm an expert in can spam, and I can help you. Uh, you know, ad- address your marketing strategy around this. Yep. It's like how do you take the what you're given and what you're good at and apply it to the situation? Yep. Um, has always been kind of what I think about when I think about how English fits into or my English background fits yeah. into the, the tech world. You've been a beneficiary of of programs, yeah, namely the Or Fellowship. It's yeah. Say, same with me, and I think one of the things that as I hear you tell your story, there's one 
component of a program like that can identify high potential individuals that maybe just don't exhibit in the box yeah. and then can help to connect them into yes. opportunities where they can flourish and they yes. can add a trem- tremendous yes. amount of value. And then also the ability to surround them with a community of people yes. so that when the rocky times happen, yeah. it can help to a safety net. Yes. I, I would love to just like for a second, um, Angie Hicks, who yeah. started Angie's List, in 2000. Two, I interviewed with her for the Or Fellowship. And I had gone through sets of interviews where people said, hey, what do you see yourself doing in five years? And I had said, I want to own my own business or be a professor. And like I was interviewing at, you know, um, corporations. And they were like, okay, well, maybe you're not a fit for what we want here. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, I talked to Angie. She interviewed me and she said, well, what do you want to do in five years? And I kind of was like, maybe a little bit too bold. And I was like, do you really want to know? You know, like, do you actually want to know? Or you want me to say, like, I'll be working in marketing at Angie's List? <laughs> and um, I would not recommend saying what I'm said. But, like, um, Angie said, well, no, I'd, I'd like to know. And I was like, I'd like to own a restaurant. Hmm. And she was like, tell me about the restaurant. You know? And, like, I think, I haven't talked to Angie about this, but I think that what she heard was, I want to be an entrepreneur. Uh-huh. I have an idea. Let's hear about your business plan for it. Let's hear yeah. about entrepreneurship. And I got the job. You That's know, awesome. I got the job as an, you know, like what I think the Or Fellowship's looking for is entrepreneurs. Yeah. And I was that. I yeah. just didn't have like an entrepreneurial degree. Yeah. I was a part of a business yeah. program at the PAW and yeah. an English background. Like, how do you, just like you're saying, how do you bridge that gap and find people who are, you know, uh, the, uh, maybe not resumed in that way but like how do you find that talent and put them in the place of it takes an open-mindedness yes not yeah. looking for i've got a job wreck and i'm looking for someone to fit that job wreck. correct yes yeah well credit to angie so, yeah end of the Lord fellowship for that yeah yep. yep scott and bill and everybody who yes, helped to yes, make yes, it happen yes. so the last thing that i wanted to touch on one of the things that i've respected about you and your the way that you formed pattern 89 is a commitment to dni from the start yeah in the days when it, you weren't playing from a big corporation yeah. with a robust HR team and big budgets to go pursue DEI initiatives. Yes. Like you, you built it in from the start. Yeah. So much so that one of your stated core values yeah. was that you wanted to build a company that was representative of the country, yes. right? Yes. So will you talk more about um, how you did that? Yeah. And then what did you learn from that experience? Yeah. So when we started Pattern 89, we sat down and said, what are our core values going to be? Core values were a big part of the success of Exact Target. They were a big downfall of other companies that I've been a part of, mm. like not having them. And so we said, all right, what are we going to stand for? Mm-hmm. And we had five core values. Um, one of them was building a company that represents the country. Our five core values were written. They were recited in every weekly meeting that we had. Mm. Our entire team, I'm hoping, would still be able to tell you four of the five um, because we talked about them all the time. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how we were living into them or not living into them and what we should do. And because of my experiences, I saw the good and bad effects of having a diverse team, uh, an inclusive team. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to have that from the very beginning because we knew that marketers look and act like all sorts of people, right? Mm-hmm. There are lots of different people who are marketers. Yeah. So we needed to make sure that as we're building an AI platform that has a, um, uh, you know, a high probability of, of uh, bias mm-hmm. in it, that we have a company that represents the country so that we can avoid some of those pitfalls mm-hmm. in terms of bias mm-hmm. um, that uh, other platforms haven't done and gotten mm-hmm. themselves in trouble. So by stating that up front, we found that 
uh, all sorts of people were attracted to working with us. Mm-hmm. Um, people who come from um, underprivileged or um, underrepresented backgrounds wanted to work with us because we put on our website, we want to build a company that represents the country, and we, um, you know, we showed up at events like Black Girls Code, or I was... Uh, the only man at a women's networking event. <laughs> I, I did ask uh, if I could come. Yeah. And they said, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but I was like literally the only guy there um, out of like 120 women, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, it's fine. And because they had invi- they said, yes, you can come. No yeah. problem. Um, and, um, you know, we, we sponsored events um, that were targeting um, those underrepresented communities. Yeah. We partnered with The Last Mile, um, mm-hmm. which is a coding um, program for uh, Justice Involved, which is another name for formerly incarcerated individuals, mm-hmm. and gives them a career path and a path out of that um, you know, experience that they mm-hmm. have been through. And um, we uh, invested in um, sponsoring visas for international candidates who came out of um, you know, top programs. But those are all things that startups normally don't do because yeah. they don't have the HR infrastructure yeah. to do it. And you know, I in investigating some of this, I was told like, "Oh, that's complicated. It's expensive." Uh-huh. It's not. I mean, like, there is money involved, and you do have to read the documentation. But like, it's not so much of a barrier that we should just go only hire people in the network, right? And compared to the Can Spam Act, it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> Correct. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so um, we did make that early commitment, and. Um, and it paid off because not only do we have um, top-notch people from um, all sorts of backgrounds, but um, other white guys wanted to work at our company because they're like, I want to be a part of a company that is a part of the change. Mm-hmm. So we actually found a lot of people who were not the underrepresented people who said, hey, I want to work there mm-hmm. um, because of your commitment to equity, diversity, and yeah. inclusion. So um, something we're really proud of. and. You know, we didn't do it all right, you but sh- we did it well. Yeah, so so the things you commented on, are, those are the regular obstacles that get thrown up. Yeah. Visa sponsorship, yes. it's hard. Yes. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't hire somebody who was previously incarcerated because what about data security issues? Yeah. I've yeah. got secure data and customers. What am I going to say to them? Yeah. So how did you, can, can you just drill down a bit more tactically into like, all right, now knowing what you know, yeah. what would you do again or what would you recommend to others who, who genuinely have a desire to, mm. to express a, a value yeah. of, of representation and diversity like you did, yeah. but are maybe getting the headwinds of the barriers that, that you heard as well? Yeah, well, um, and the easiest one is just to show up. There is a networking event every week in Indianapolis for an underrepresented community, mm-hmm. um, either in tech or not in tech. And if, if it were me, I would message that the person who runs that and say like, hey, hi, I, um, am, I would like to come mm-hmm. and just be a part of your community as an ally. Mm-hmm. Can I come and support you in some way? I'm, you know, we're also looking to hire in, um, in your community and we're trying to increase that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but listen, I just want to understand you know, how to be a part of the community. Mm-hmm. Sort of ask to be invited, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and that's normally free. Mm-hmm. Then you can move on to time commitments or time investment. Everyone's looking for mentors or for um, you know opportunities to um, help with career development or that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's an easy way. Um, get on all the job boards. Um, partner with historically black you know colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. Um, all like all of those things are free. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Um, and then um, hopefully just by showing up and being a part of the community, that's an easy way to, um, you know, investing time is often more expensive to mm -hmm. an individual than throwing out a sponsorship amount, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then spread the love too. Like um, I would ask our team to go and sp I, can't, I can't go to every breakfast every morning, you yeah. know, but with a team of 25, we can set, we can spread it out and make, you know, do some nice uh, connecting there. Mm -hmm. um, so those are two tactical things. Um, and then um, the third is talk to your board. Um, you know, we, we went to the board and um, talked about ways that we wanted to increase diversity and, um, inclusion efforts, um, and um, that was that was super helpful. You know, mm -hmm. because like on the risk management side, specifically mm -hmm. working with Last Mile, we were mm -hmm. questions about that. We wanted to make sure we had support. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the world that we that we were living in, data, AI, it's a yeah. You know, data security is a big thing. Yeah. Um, so the the other thing is like just talking about equity, diversity, and inclusion, showing up to the conversation. For somebody who looks and has my background, like mm -hmm. just being there is is a step, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I also, from an attitude standpoint, always went into these conversations like, "Listen, I'm going to make a mistake." And often people don't want to put their toe in the water because they're like, they don't want to get zinged, yeah. you know, for saying the wrong thing or whatever. And I just sort of went in with a lot of humility, like, "Listen, I don't, you know." Point me in the wrong, or the right direction if I go on the wrong one, mm -hmm. and um, let's talk about it. And even with our team, there were some scenarios where people were made some unknowingly insensitive remarks, um, or um, you know there was potential conflict bubbling up, and I would just call the person and mm -hmm. say like, "Hey, let's talk about this. What happened? Mm -hmm. um, that type of stuff." So there's a little bit of a time component there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So those are some tactical things I think are yeah. worth pursuing. Well. Thanks for setting an example of how it can be done, huh. and it doesn't have to be one of those things that gets deferred until later yeah. when you have the resources or you have the time or you have the bigger team. Yeah, well, uh, I think you're, it's important. The, the pro I hear that, and then the problem is you're so down the far down the path, and you find yourself just with a team of people from your network who mm -hmm. only look like you, mm -hmm. and then it makes it even harder mm -hmm. to bring in talent who is not of that demographic or whatever because it's like wait. I'm going to be the only one. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I hear that from um, candidates who are like, well, I don't want to be the only person, mm -hmm. you know? And so then you end up having to get over that hump. Mm -hmm. If you just start with that in mind, um, we heard that over and over. Like, oh, you guys made an early commitment to it, so it's, it creates this pipeline and people want to join yep. because they're not going to be the only, the only one yeah. um, at the table. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. RJ, this has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. And we're thrilled for what your, your leadership and your team's leadership here in marketing tech and the AI landscape Thanks. Um, is going to lead for the future here of our tech community. Well, thanks to you and the, the TechPoint for helping enable all that, too. Thanks, RJ.